You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. You listen to Amphibicast. I'm your host, Andrew Bates, and this week's episode, we're going to talk about, yes, bioactive. Uh, we're going to talk about the term, how it's come into use, and um, we're going to discuss some 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 backstory, um, some of the history behind how naturalistic enclosures became popular, how they started off, what some of my experiences were them were, and we're going to break down uh, some of the do's and don'ts and some of the theories and whatnot in terms of how the how the mode is best applied and. Uh, I know for a lot of people out there, I can hear you cringing in your <laughs> cringing in your chairs. I know it's uh, kind of a it's one it's it's one of those topics that uh, people kind of are you know very very serious about or um, you know a little bit more casual in their approach, I guess you could call it. But we're going to get into all that. But first of all, of course, thanks everyone for the nice five star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. A nice five-star review goes a long way. It helps me get the show out there to a wider audience. So if you get a chance, leave a nice nice review. Uh, some nice comments goes a long way. And if you're interested in supporting the show, consider becoming a patron. I have a few different tiers on Patreon. I've got one as low as a dollar a month. And the most popular tier, of course, is the $5 a month. That'll get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And you'll find that in the link tree in the show description. Uh, you'll also find links to the merch store. I've got some uh, some frog swag holidays are coming up you know if you want to get some uh, some cool merch christmas they make great stuff they make great stocking stuffers uh if you're interested in getting that stuff there's you'll find that in the link tree as well you'll also find a link for panamanian frog conservation if you want to support the efforts in panama and uh, you'll also of course find your 10 percent uh, listener discount off of in situ ecosystems if you're looking to purchase uh purchase a tank from them you get a 10% discount just by being a listener uh, if you make a purchase through the link in the show. And uh, other than that, um, well, let's let's get into tonight's topic, shall we? So having kept reptiles and amphibians for essentially you know three decades myself, I've seen many different care methods for really any number of species come and go over the years. And as our knowledge base increases, so does our collective understanding of what constitutes proper husbandry. We have greater resources available to us nowadays, more so than we did in the 80s and 90s and even earlier, and information is more quickly and, and readily available. But that's not to say that husbandry was in the dark ages back then. In fact, it was quite the contrary. There were many people with a good understanding of how to provide proper care for reptiles and amphibians back in the old days. And after all, I mean, if everyone's husbandry was a total failure back then, we never would have had anything that we have now. Um, it was kind of a progression and there were some achievements that happened along the way and some failures, but regardless, there's also, you know, there was admittedly a lot of bad care back then that, to be honest, kind of bordered on neglect. Um, and that was a function of many factors, really. It was, it was, you know, in part ignorance and lack of resources. And, you know, by ignorance, I mean that there was just a lack of knowledge. Isn't ignorance, ignorance is one of those words that bothers me because it automatically has this very negative and like malicious connotation. And it really wasn't. Just a lot of people just didn't know. They didn't have information. So they kind of just guessed based on what they thought was right. But in the end, of course, there's many different means at our disposal nowadays anyway that can accomplish the same goal when it comes to husbandry. By this, I mean, of course, that the animal being kept is provided with all that it needs to live a healthy life under our care. As time has gone by, though, there's been more uh, a more focused approach towards incorporating as many naturalistic elements into husbandry as possible. So like I said, for this week's episode, I'm going to discuss the naturalistic approach uh, also sort of known by the, the, the colloquial term or the popular term, bioactive. This episode is aimed at keepers of all levels, um, 
really for anyone interested in approaching amphibian husbandry from a naturalistic approach. And uh, I want to make it clear, though, that despite what you've been led to believe, bioactive, at the end of the day, it's just a term. It's not necessarily the hallmark of perfect husbandry. Labeling a product or an enclosure as bioactive does not give you an automatic pass just because someone calls it bioactive. There are, in fact, a lot of nuances to naturalistic keeping, and I hope that this week's episode will cover them in a way that's helpful and enlightening to newer hobbyists who may be confused or even overwhelmed by the naturalistic or bioactive approach. But I also hope that this episode is relatable to more advanced keepers who have employed these methods long before it was even there was even a term for it. I'm going to provide some history, break down some of the methods and principles, and give some insights in terms of when and how it can either succeed or, or fail. The most important thing that I want everyone to take away from this episode, though, is that there isn't one single method of keeping for everyone in every situation. If you have your own approach and you have success with that approach, that's fine. The idea, though, is really kind of honing in on a single method that works for you in a way that is, well, obviously it works for you, but it also works for the animals in a way that is that is healthy to them and hopefully as naturalistic as possible. So... Uh, let's just get into it. One of the biggest draws to this hobby is the idea of creating a naturalistic setting where animals can enjoy a long and healthy life. It's also about creating something that is both practical and aesthetically pleasing. Many of us, myself included, grew up going to zoos and aquariums and really being impressed by the sophisticated enclosure designs that were there complete with, I mean, everything imaginable. In fact, as a kid, I used to go home after a trip to the Bronx Zoo or to the Baltimore Aquarium, because I had family in Baltimore, and I would draw up blueprints for my own zoos and enclosures with special attention to all the details that I thought would be important. I wanted the look of the rainforest just the way they did. And as a, you know, as I advanced as a keeper, I kept that goal in the back of my mind. In fact, I remember being actually being extremely frustrated as a kid by the fact that I didn't have the materials or the know-how to make these really naturalistic enclosures and to replicate what I had seen at zoos and aquariums. So back then I had to survive by just, you know, hand-drawing backgrounds on paper and taping them to the back of the aquariums. Uh, primitive, yes, but the inspiration was there. I wanted an elaborate and naturalistic enclosure, but I didn't have the means of pulling it off. And in addition, we were limited to kind of a few standard size aquariums and tank setups back then. So for the most part, in terms of our closures, uh, excuse me, enclosures, they didn't lend themselves well to these more impressive builds that people are doing today. I mean, you can get custom enclosures in, in pretty much any size. And a long time ago when, you know, husbandry wasn't necessarily as advanced or sophisticated as it is today, at least for the average person, we just didn't have access to that stuff. And as the interest continued to spark the market obviously followed suit to cater to that interest. In contrast, though, it should be noted that outside of zoos, with their generally healthy display animals, reptiles and amphibians in the trade were often on the fragile side 30 years ago, and putting them into a naturalistic-looking tank at the time was considered actually to be risky, and in many cases it was uh, frowned upon. Wild-caught was the norm, and many, but many but not all, were sick, stressed, malnourished, or all of the above. So it was also a common approach to keep enclosures very, very simple and clean. Although the irony is that many of the Spartan enclosures were actually, well, they were actually pretty filthy at the time. It seemed that the cleaner the enclosure was, the harder it was to actually keep it clean, if that makes any sense. In fact, frogs were often so fragile back then that anything that might have been a cause for a sudden crash or sudden death 
Um, no one was able to come to a specific conclusion, and that's why often people erred on the side of very, very conservative husbandry. Um, in fact, at the time, uh, I don't know. I mean, most most vendors will give a live guarantee on amphibians today. It's kind of kind of generally accepted as some kind of guarantee, but. Back then, there was no guarantee. There was no live guarantee on any kind of amphibian. And if you had an issue and you brought the animal back to the store, the first thing I would ask you was, what did you put in the tank? And if you'd put anything from outside, whether you know, regardless of where you lived, um, that would pretty much be their answer as well. You shouldn't have added anything naturalistic to it. So um, not the approach to every situation, but it was kind of common, at least in the world that I came up in. Uh, you generally didn't introduce anything that wasn't artificial into the tank because of the risk. You didn't want to deal with stress or introducing any kind of pathogen or any kind of chemical, pesticide, or whatever. And people were really leery of that. So, of course, it was one of those things that was avoided up until up until relatively recently. Um, the industry embraced disposable husbandry, husbandry products at the time, such as, um, I mean, I hate this, but a reptile carpet which despite anyone says you, you cannot clean it. it. It was, it was never, honestly, my opinion was it was never actually designed to be re- cleaned and reused properly because once an animal like soils it, it it's, it's not going to happen. But that was the beauty of the product because you know, that you'd sell it as being replaceable, uh, excuse me, you'd sell it as being cleanable, but it really wasn't. So you'd be back at the store every time your animal went to the bathroom to buy a new one. So that's kind of a, kind of a marketing trick on their part. But there was a lot of products. There was that. There was AstroTurf, which was a little bit more forgiving. And yes, there was gravel. Gravel was the substrate for pretty much everything from tarantulas to tortoises to horned frogs. It, it could be rinsed off and reused relatively easily. Obviously, we know that that's not an appropriate substrate for, for probably every species that we keep it on now. But uh, at the time, there really were no permanent to semi-permanent substrates with the longevity of the artificial uh, alternatives in mind. So, you know, we didn't have the the substrates or, um, you know, leaf litter wasn't common, things like that. There just weren't these materials. So unless you had the stuff in your backyard, you kind of were limited to all the artificial stuff. But everything at the time was, you know, designed to be easily cleaned or in other cases, obviously disposable in order to be considered to be reliable and effective. And that was just the way things were. As I just mentioned, though, the clean enclosures were usually, at least in the the, the shops that I kind of, I, well, one that I worked in and the one that I frequented, these were usually the most filthy and difficult to maintain, believe it or not. And once an animal, you know, once an animal crapped in its enclosure, to be, to be bluntly honest, it became a disaster area. And God help you if you didn't get to it immediately. This gave way to that stereotypical... I call it the reptile shop stink of the 80s and 90s, that smell of animal waste, bacon under heat lamps, or sitting in a fouled water bowl. It, it it didn't seem like the best way to keep an animal healthy. And that's not to say that the approach was a total failure. And if you are consistent with your cleaning routine, you can maintain a very simplistic enclosure that is sanitary and safe. It just takes a lot of dedication and a lot of work. I'm a bit meticulous when it comes to cleaning, especially when it comes to my simple enclosures, and it works well when it's appropriate and practical. You just have to understand that it's actually it's actually more work to change paper towels every single day than it is to monitor a tank, monitor a tank that's filled with, say, ABG mix and, and leaf litter. So in conclusion, a super clean enclosure is the easiest one to get dirty. And I, I can't stand dirty. I hated that dirty reptile shop smell. 
And I wanted to get as far away from that as I possibly could. And as, as a side note, just to show that I pulled it off and, you know, that I can kind of, I got to pat myself on the back for it. Uh, my, my reptile slash frog room is in my basement. I had a guy come to repair my cable last year. And, uh, obviously when people, I mean, if, I know for many of you who have large collections and whatnot, and people who have mixed reptile and amphibian rooms, people who have bird, whatever, anybody who has animals, when you have someone come into your house, it's usually kind of a surprise to them. But when this guy came down, he said, what do you, I said, oh, I said, I have frogs. He goes, wow. He goes, it doesn't smell down here. And I was like, thank you. I was like, obviously, obviously I got it right because I've achieved that one goal of having everything as clean and orderly as possible. So let's think for a second about what causes these problems. Well, the, the fundamental problem with this is really waste. Um, waste causes odor. It can facilitate the spread of disease and is generally unpleasant for both animal and keeper. It's one of the biggest problems with keeping animals in captivity. So if we want to avoid issues related to constant maintenance associated with managing waste, what do we do? Well, simply put, we can delegate the work. Instead of we, the humans, doing it, we can create an environment that will partially do it for us, or at least assist us in the process. A downscaled ecosystem complete with producers, consumers, detritivores, beneficial microbes, fungi, etc., all working together to keep the waste load down. Obviously, it's not nothing's going to eliminate it completely, but to keep that waste load down. And waste management is, in many cases, with a naturalistic setup, is, is an important goal, if not the one of the main goals. And in many cases, it's achieved via naturalistic or, you know, quote-unquote, bioactive enclosures. And there's also added benefits for the animal as well. The breakdown of waste is better managed, and animals can live in a captive environment, a captive environment that is closer to the environment that they evolved to live in, obviously under our care, assuming we, we don't miss the mark when we get everything right. So what is, what is bioactive? What does it mean? Where did it come from? When does it work, and when does it fail? Well, first off, what is bioactive? Well, the term can mean many things depending on who is using it. There are those who use the term to define a, a very holistic method of keeping that attempts to replicate a very specific biome in a captive setting that resembles the target species' natural environment as closely as possible. This definition incorporates not only plants and cleanup crews, but also specific lighting parameters, photo periods, microbial activity, and specific soils or substrates. It goes beyond the single goal of, of waste management and ventures into a more rigorous husbandry regimen. I mean, literally trying to create everything that the animal experiences outside of captivity, inside of captivity. There are also those who take a more modified approach aiming for a naturalistic enclosure that replicates what a specific animal needs within reason, of course, and the goal is almost primarily focused on waste management and the general well-being of the animal, obviously without many of those very, very, very ultra-specific elements. Um, consider it a practical alternative to Spartan keeping, we'll say that. Um, then there's the more oblique definition of the term, and this is the one that the industry has capitalized off of, the idea that the buzzword bioactive automatically equals good husbandry, regardless of how it's applied or executed. Buzzwords are what sell products, and in part, that's why I'm not a big fan of the term. I, I honestly really, really like the principle itself, and I obviously use it. I, I just never really cared much for the term. 
it's, you know, the, the whole fact that the buzzwords are used to sell products is one of the reasons I, I never look favorably on the term because it seems to be used in more situations to sell products than anything else. And many of which, many of these products sell for like quite a high price, despite the fact that the source materials are literally dirt cheap. So my criticism is this good husbandry doesn't come in a box labeled bioactive with a bag of dirt, a springtail culture and plant clipping. It comes from understanding husbandry specifics, knowing how to create an appropriate biome, uh, understanding some basic science and a desire to master care in a way that is objective and successful, even if it's different from what other people are doing. It's tailoring your approach to meet the needs of a specific individual of a specific species. So there's no such thing as a generic kit, you know what I mean? And I see this stuff out there for sale and it kind of bothers me because it actually defeats the defeats the whole purpose. The idea behind naturalistic care is to recreate as closely as possible because we're never going to get it 100%, as close to possible as the environment that this animal evolved to live in, okay? And again, that can be accomplished by by different methods. It's, it's open to interpretation, you know? Um, obviously animals do live with humans in certain many situations. You'll find a lot, honestly, a lot of the common species in the trade you'll even find in human habitations. So um, it can be very, very specific or it can be a little bit, a little bit broad. But the idea is that you want to match the environment that the animal is normally found in. Um, you know, again, not, not to beat it to death, but, you know, and many, I know many of you out there, like when you hear the term bioactive, we also kind of cringe and, uh, you know, people in the, the, the greater, um, I, f- I find it more like the reptile community, actually more so in the amphibian community, but um, people often ask like, well, you know, why are you so against the term? And I say, it's, 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 it's the term. It's not, it's not the, the method. It's not the, um, the, the rationale behind it. To be honest, I think it's actually, I think it's great. Um, I think it's, it's makes husbandry much easier. I think it's better for the animal. I think it's just a better experience. Uh, I just don't like the term, but that's just me. So how did I find this whole thing out and what worked for me? To be honest, I started using live plants and native springtails in my frog enclosures 20 years ago. And this was long before bioactive even existed as a term. And I really didn't think much of it. In fact, it happened kind of by accident. Uh, at the time, I used cypress mulch as my substrate of choice for most of the animals I kept back then. I was not keeping dart frogs actively much at all. I, I kept like a tree over rotus around 2003. But um, I kept a wide variety of other amphibians, everything from, you know, uh, budgets, frogs to fire salamanders to tiger salamanders. I, I kept a little bit of everything. And um, cypress mulch just happened to be a good substrate. Uh, I noticed that one day I went into my, fro- my frog room and I noticed that there were tons of these little tan bugs crawling around in a big pile of, you know, if you ever had pixies, you know, it comes out of a pixie frog, uh, it was a big pile of it. And there were these little white bugs crawling all over it. They ended up colonizing a few of my moist enclosures, but they didn't seem to be bothering any of the frogs or salamanders, so I let them be. I did a brief online search, and it showed me what they were, and I made them a part of my high, my high moisture enclosures. I took springtails from one enclosure and added them to my other enclosures. It cut down on waste, and it saved me the aggravation and the smell of dealing with it. Uh, I had it in my head for some time that sterile wasn't always the way to go, and if these little bugs were helping me out... I figured I would just let them be. They're not parasites. They're not anything else. They seem to be, you know, getting the waste started. Uh, If I don't go in there and, you know, get that big mess out myself immediately, I I know at least I can let them 
start the process, buy me a little bit of time, and uh, the whole thing isn't just going to come, you know, an, an absolute mess the way it would if there was nothing in there. So the premise itself seemed pretty simple and straightforward. I kept species that produce a decent amount of waste, as I said, I know pixie frogs, horn frogs, etc. And it seemed only natural to have some detritivores in the enclosure to get a head start on the waste before I could remove it myself. I'd been using live plants since the 90s, and it just seemed to complete a little mini biome. As far as substrate went, I was tired of the disposable stuff. In fact, I never really liked the disposable stuff. I wanted something that lasted. And although not the best choice, as, you know, as I said, I, I use potting mixes um, in, in some of my enclosures. And they held plant roots well. They drained easily. And all in all, it worked. My animals did well, and everything was pretty good. And I kept pretty much everything in this in this way. I kept geckos. I kept you know my amphibian species. I uh, didn't really keep snakes this way, but um, that's that's another another matter entirely. But I know other keepers were doing it as well, uh, but we really didn't think it would become this m- massive trend 20 years later. And as trends go, sometimes they lose their original intended purpose and they end up kind of saturating a scene to the point where they become you know unrecognizable from where they first started. So for the sake of this episode, I, I wanted to just pick apart some of these tenants that I think are essential to what many people would refer to today as a bioactive keeping. You know, although again, I do prefer the term naturalistic. So, what's the goal besides waste management? Well, the goal is to create an enclosure that replicates the inhabitants' natural living conditions as closely as possible. This can be accomplished as simply or as elaborately as we choose. Although elaborate doesn't necessarily equal better. We must understand, though, that there is not a single template that fits the naturalistic or bioactive mode, and sometimes many of the classic components we hear about aren't necessary in every situation. Every bioactive or naturalistic build doesn't necessarily need everything that comes in these starter kits, or necessarily everything that you see in the setup for another species. For example, if I'm doing an arid build, um, I mean, you're not going to run into many arid builds for amphibians, but if I'm going to run an arid build that replicates an area of very, very low rainfall and very, very low humidity, I can probably skip the leakage drainage layer since there won't be any water to drain. Conversely, if I have a species that likes to burrow, uh, such as my pixie frog, I'm definitely not going to use the leak layer with the substrate barrier because they're just going to end up getting dug up and destroyed. I'm not going to provide a shopping list here. I'm Instead, I'm just going to list the specific concerns and the ways to meet those concerns in a way that is consistent with achieving the goal. And by that, I mean, you know, you can make a list if you want. It's it's up to you. But, you know, think think about what the animal needs when you make that make that list. You know, I find a lot of these kits are just kind of like a big like a shopping list or links to Amazon and affiliates, whatever. And some of the stuff you might not necessarily need in every situation. So. Let's let's go about it piece by piece. Let's start with the sizing of an enclosure to match the inhabitants. Well, we'll start with the waste handling capacity um, and an animal's spatial requirements. And by this, I mean sizing an enclosure that's big enough, there's a big enough footprint that it won't be overwhelmed by the inhabitants' waste output. There's really no hard or fast rule for this. There's no magic number. There's no no number of frogs per gallon or whatever. It really boils down to individual species their size, their life stage, and of course, their waste output and frequency. Dart frogs, for example, they produce a fair amount of waste, but it's small and consistent amounts. Pixie frogs, on the other hand, produce a large amount of waste in much less consistent amounts. I know that 
if I take my, you know, if I take my trio of of uh, Turbulus out and I put them on, you know, a wet paper towel, I know there's going to be poo there by like, you know, the next day. Um, You know, and then obviously I'd put them back. But if I did the same thing with my Pixie, just stuck it on a paper towel, it might not go for, you know, several weeks. Sometimes that just happens. So you have to balance the output in terms of what the enclosure can manage. More frogs in an enclosure, if you're doing a communal, more waste is produced. Um, A lot of waste in a space that is too small for a given species is detrimental to the animals. So we want to aim for an enclosure that can balance a species' need for space and the amount of waste that that mini environment can handle. It's also better for the animal's well-being that it has enough reasonable space to interact with its environment as naturally as possible. And the more waste is produced, the more space you'll need to accommodate what is also called the cleanup crew, which we'll get to in a second. But you, you don't want an animal to be trapped in its own waste. You want it to be able to avoid that. So obviously, sizing an enclosure appropriately for this type of setup is important. You know, you can't necessarily stick an animal in a very, very small enclosure, regardless of how much you put in there, how many spring, springtails, whatever, uh, and the, the animal produces a large amount of waste. It's nothing is going to get that down. You need a very large footprint to be able to, to handle a large volume of waste. So you figure... Um, Think of it like a food pyramid. You know what I mean? You have your animal at the top and you have all the the, the, the tritivores and the bacteria and everything increasing almost like exponentially as it gets down below it. So you don't need to go super large. I mean, I know a lot of people like to go with the largest aquarium or excuse me, largest enclosure possible. But I mean, you, you can do things within reason as long as you size it in accordance to what the animal's needs are. So in terms of the cleanup crew, the term really applies to all the organisms that begin the process of breaking down waste. Waste can be in the form of fecal matter, shed skin, unviable eggs, decaying substrate, dead feeder insects, etc. Pretty much anything that's that's dead. The crew is composed of fungi, bacteria, the tritivores, uh, things like isopods, springtails, all working together to maintain homeostasis in the tank. Because again, that's another another kind of goal. You don't really want the tank to go to extremes in terms of waste management where the it'll just kind of get overwhelmed and foul. You want a balance to be able to be maintained. If a tank is sized correctly, these organisms can begin the breakdown of waste before more harmful organisms can get a foothold, thereby keeping the tank cleaner than it would without them. Uh, it's vital though that the output of waste be matched to what the crew can handle. And Here's three examples of of what can happen because I do see some mismatches from time to time in terms of what people's expectations are of a of a cleanup crew versus what the cleanup crew uh, it's like a tongue twister <laughs> uh, versus what the cleanup crew can actually handle in reality. The first one involves too little space and too much waste. There isn't enough surface area for the crew to live in numbers abundant enough to manage large amounts of waste. For example, in a 20-gallon tank with a, a large pixie in it, and I keep picking pixies because, you know, when a pixie goes, it, it's just, it's it's a disaster. So I'm kind of using them as the extreme example. But uh, there's no way enough microfauna could be present in a 20-gallon tank to be able to quickly break down a massive pile of pixie crap very, very quickly. You need to get a much larger tank to be able to pull that off. And obviously, you're going to want to give the frog the opportunity to get away from that so that it's not constantly immersed in it, you know. Um, clean your crew in a, sm- in a small tank, they'll start it, but odds are they won't be able to finish it before it rots and stinks up the place or it becomes a hazard to the frog. Frogs don't tolerate their own waste particularly well. Um, 
as a general rule, I mean, there are some frogs that do live in tree holes, which are kind of filthy, but in general, you really, you don't want frogs near their own waste for prolonged periods. Um, most cleanup crews that I, I have found in my experience, they have a carrying capacity based on the space. And I've noticed that my springtail colonies, the ones that I keep, even in my, my little cultures, they kind of reach a critical mass and then slow down in production based on the enclosure size, meaning the, the footprint. They don't explode exponentially independent of living space, meaning if I have an X amount of number of springtails in my little you know clay culture, I'm not going to open it up one day and there's going to be millions of them pouring out. They kind of they kind of taper off and balance out on their own. So let's just say for argument's sake, you can have X amount of springtails per square foot. The more square footage, the more springtails you're going to have, the more waste management you're going to be able to have. So that's what I talk about when I mention, um, you know, matching the footprint and having reasonable expectations of what the, the carrying capacity of the cleanup crew can handle. It all depends also on... Really, in addition to waste, what other food is you know available to them? Um, I mean, even if you have an initial boom with like a you know, let's say you have like a a lot of fungus in there, you have you know, springtails are, are great at controlling fungus, but um, once things balance out, it'll kind of level off, and you really won't see really any kind of extremes once things kind of balance off. Assuming your microphone is healthy, you don't have anything there that's going to decimate your springtails, but. Um, Isopods are another option that people choose to go for. I, I like isopods. I think they're great. I think they're a lot of fun. But in my opinion, I'm not a big fan of isopods and frogs tanks, um, with the exception of maybe the dwarf whites. But isopods can get pretty ravenous, and they need a constant source of food. There has to be enough waste in a tank to be able to keep them busy. And if my pixie only goes once a month, that's not frequent enough to sustain isopods. And that's... Um, that's where I'm on the fence about them. I, I find that they have the potential to become a nuisance in the absence of waste. And I've heard different things from people and people can debate this all they want. I've heard people say that they eat dart frog eggs. I've heard that they bother the dart frogs at night, almost the way crickets do. Um, it's hard to say different, you know, every situation is different. I know the dwarf whites are generally considered in the hobby as being safe, I did an experiment once just to see uh, how rough isopods could actually be. And I took some native species, I think it was a peace scabber. And I actually put a live or semi-live um, dubia roach in there. You know, you just kind of, you crush the head and you kind of leave them there so they're mobile. And these isopods just ate this thing alive, like really, really quickly. And obviously a peace scabber is known to be a more aggressive species, but uh, it does concern me a little bit that you have predators in the, in the tank, even if they're invertebrates, they, they, they still can be predators. And um, in general, uh, you know, I know a lot of people like to push the isopods and their bioactive, you know, setups and crews. Uh, I, I, I have mixed feelings. I have dwarf whites in some of my enclosures, but I don't know if I would consider putting anything else or even necessarily needing isopods just to be on the safe side. I mean, again, I'm cool with them. I, I honestly like keeping them myself. I think it's fun keeping them in their own little enclosures, but I don't necessarily see them being effective in the long term. I mean, again, if it works for you and you're not having an incident, I don't, it, it doesn't bother me. I mean, if that works for you, by all means, let it work. You know, that could be an example of, like I said, every situation is different, but I don't necessarily see isopods as being the end-all, be-all answer to waste management. Even though they are pretty aggressive and they will they will clean up waste pretty 
pretty quickly. Um, it does, it does, you know, pose some, some possibilities for situations that you might want to avoid, but if you're going to use them, use them, you know, it's, uh, it's really just a matter of personal preference, but anyway, there has to be enough ways to keep them busy. I know a lot of people like to add stuff for their isopods. They'll add like, you know, dried pieces of fish or fish flakes or whatever. But I think that you want to be able to match the footprint overall into, like I said, you know, you want to be able to frame it so that there's enough space with not too much waste. So uh, the second example, and we went over, I kind of went over with the first one, but um, the second example is too much space and not enough waste. I don't usually see this too often with frogs, but I see it with reptiles and inverts. A large arid enclosure, like what I mentioned earlier, with a species that creates very, very little waste, isn't the best candidate for springtails and isopods, or really what they would call a bioactive enclosure, because there's really not much in the way of waste being generated. So if you're going to have microfauna, you're going to have to supplement them, like I said, with something else to keep them busy so that they don't either bother the inhabitant or they don't just die out because they have nothing to sustain them. They're going to find some other form of nutrition in order to survive. So you're going to either have to provide that yourself. And if you're providing nutrition for your, your cleanup crew just to kind of stay there on standby, um, I don't really see it as being particularly practical because they're there to break down waste. If they're not breaking down waste and you're adding them food, um, maybe they don't necessarily need to be in there in the first place. But again, it's you know, a matter of preference. I see people adding springtails, for example, to arid tarantula enclosures and only to watch them kind of hang out by the water dish for a few weeks and then eventually die because they become desiccated. Um, think of it this way. Again, arid situation isn't really a common setup for, for frogs or salamanders, but the reason we find full skeletons out in the desert, like full animal skeletons and not in the rainforest per se, is the availability of, of moisture. Things decay quicker and more thoroughly in moist environments because it's just better suited to it. Waste may desiccate in an arid tank, but it's not going to break down the same way that it would, say, in a, in a more uh, rainforest-type tank. So if you're not into amphibians or whatever, you, you have an arid enclosure, I hear about people doing it, but you know the, the cleanup crew is going to need a source of nutrition. It's also going to need a source of moisture. So you I mean, after having conversations with a lot of isopod keepers and breeders, as I've, I've asked people this question pointedly, I said, what happens when you put them in an arid enclosure? And pretty much everyone says that they die. Uh, everyone who I've ever talked to who work with, I've had people on the show. I've phrased that question to them because people swear up and down. Oh, no, 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 they don't. Certain species of isopod do better with more arid conditions, but I found that springtails, uh, excuse me, not nutrition, moisture, certain, certain species of springtails, um, Pretty much the the ones that you have available in the trade, I have never really seen them thrive without a substantial amount of moisture. So uh, if you're going to do arid, there's nothing wrong with going naturalistic, but I don't know that you're going to have the same success with a cleanup crew that you may with a more moist type of setup. So again, if there isn't enough waste, the cleanup crew is going to need something else to do, and you're going to end up sustaining them as you wait for them to actually take over the role of cleaning up. And again, every species is different. Prime example, I have tarantulas. I have my uh, my GBB, which is basically an arid tarantula. It's in there with just some substrate. It webs up. It gets some water once in a while. I never saw any need to introduce any kind of cleanup crew in there because it makes very, 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 very little waste. I pull the boluses out. Um, and even the you know, the more uh, you know, moisture species like my um, my Aeginiculata, 
again, I don't do it because it, it doesn't really make much in the way of waste, so I don't kind of need them. But um, that's spiders. So let, let's get back onto frogs. And example number three is kind of the right zone. That's the zone you want to be in to have a cleanup crew that's productive and actually does something. In this zone, the waste carrying capacity is matched well to what's in the tank. So uh, think of it as a hypothetical. Let's just say a 36 by 36 by 18 tank with a proper substrate, springtails, and a pair of terribillus in it. Okay, it's sized right, it's not overstocked, and it's not being overworked by excessive amounts of waste. There's enough room for the animals to avoid their own waste, and there's enough surface area for a cleanup crew to effectively break that stuff down. Overstocking puts stress on a crew as well because there's only so much that they can manage. Again, give the crew a job. You want to make sure that moderation you know, moderation is the key. Give them a job that's not going to overwhelm them or underwhelm them. And don't expect any cleanup crew to do all the work for you. That's where I see many beginners fall victim to these starter kits and kind of the bioactive buzz is that they're under the assumption that the, that the cleanup crew is just going to handle everything. And it's not. They're going to get it started. They're going to be helpful to you. But you're still going to have to remove poo and shed skin and all this other stuff it, just as part of your routine maintenance, you really can't rely on the cleanup crew to completely remove everything because you don't want waste that's going to be in there indefinitely. Um, and by shed skin, I don't I don't necessarily mean shed skin in like the reptile term. I merely mean more along the lines of frogs just kind of, you know, shedding. They frogs shed their skin. I don't really necessarily see a problem with, with you know, letting a cleanup crew break down a snake shed. But in general, when frogs shed that, that shed skin is not really if they well if they don't eat it some of them eat it but um, that's generally not really healthy for the frogs to be around you know and again that's just from 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 many conversations I've had with many different people who work with different species so that's something that you want to get broken down I mean if you have a large frog and it just it sloughs off its skin I mean again pixie I've had pixies do this where they kind of went into like a semi brumation. They sloughed, they didn't eat it, and I, I gotta, get, gotta get that out of there right away because it rots. But anyway, size the enclosure to what the cleanup crew can handle, what the animal needs. Don't overwhelm it and don't give it too little to do. Now let's move on to mechanics. And this is something that people often overlook because they fall into the set it and forget it bioactive kit nonsense. A tank is a living thing. It it moves, okay? What is it what what is it, what do I mean by that? What does it mean by moving? In many cases, we're talking about water and air, okay? And I don't mean a water feature, and I, I don't, I mean the passage of water through different layers in the tank via either misting or routine watering or even evaporation. It's important that we establish the animal's humidity and moisture needs in a way that don't overwhelm or soak the tank. This is where ventilation and drainage is important. In the average dart frog tank, for example, we need a drainage layer to serve as a reservoir for water to drain to. Dendrobatids aren't aquatic and generally don't appreciate constantly soaked substrate, so the drainage layer serves a practical purpose. Whether it's a layer of leca or a similar material, it serves a purpose. The substrate and the drainage layer is designed not to hold water, but to take it away. It's also crucial that we manage airflow because air contains the moisture that equates humidity. A saturated substrate filled with nutrients can quickly become anaerobic and rot. It's a common misconception that a wet substrate is essential for high humidity species, but in reality, that's not the case. Controlling ventilation in the enclosure and aeration of the substrate is what preserves humidity and keeps the tank from becoming soaked and failing. It's all about finding that sweet spot in the middle. 
air and water need to flow or else they become stagnant. Stagnant air and water facilitate the growth of harmful elements and are important but overlooked consideration when it comes to waste management. All springtails in the world aren't going to clean up an anaerobic substrate. It'll either have to be scrapped completely or dried out in order for it to work again. A drainage layer can also have an added benefit of providing a retreat for springtails. Like I said, they do like moisture, so if you have a drainage layer that is got some water in it, they might appreciate that. But when we think of husbandry requirement for a different species, say a white tree frog, for example, the tank is generally drier and less humid than one for dart frogs, as well as going to be warmer. In fact, many people, myself included, provide a basking light for their white tree frogs. The more restricted ventilation in a dart frog tank would cause a greenhouse effect in a much hotter tank. So if we add a heat source such as a basking bulb, it's important that we provide our white tree frog with ventilation in such a way that it won't cook the frog. Allow for temperature gradients in the tank. Allow for a less humid ambient environment if that needs to be the case. To put it bluntly, though, don't use the dart frog template for the white tree frog and vice versa. Don't, like I said, don't fall into the trap that you have one setup and that's going to work for every animal. You have to consider what's going in and out of the tank. Some animals appreciate more ventilation than others. Even certain species of dart frogs, certain species, even some locales appreciate more ventilation and more ambient humidity than others. I've had conversations about some of the large obligates, and I've heard it really runs the gambit between some of the different species and locales in terms of what they want air-wise. Be able to let the tank not just, like, don't let it become a swamp, okay? Very few species do well in, in a swampy environment. Don't let it become rotten. Don't let it become foul. Don't rely on the drainage layer to be this magical thing. You're going to have to have some way for that water to escape the drainage layer. If it rises up into the substrate, regardless of the species, substrate's going to rot, it's going to get gross, the animal's not going to do well. So understand the premise behind the drainage layer if you're going to add it. If you don't need it, you don't need it. If you don't have the high moisture content, if you don't have misting, if you don't have that, you can get away without a drainage layer. You know, the idea is that in a rainforest, we have heavy rains, water soaks the substrate, it leaves, it sinks down, it washes away, substrate dries out again. That's the whole point. So, like I said, you don't necessarily need a drainage layer in every situation. It's it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Trust me. You don't need it in every situation. In situations where you do, though, with dart frogs, for example, it's pretty much indispensable. But think about the purpose behind it. Think about the moisture content. Think about the air in there. Think about where your moisture and your air circulation is going. If you need a drainage layer to facilitate that, incorporate one. If you don't, there's other ways about it. While I have substrate brought up, we might as well move into it. Substrate can be very simple or very complicated. In the dark frog world, we prefer ABG mix and leaf litter, and in many cases now a lot of us use foam. It drains well and it mimics the leaf litter that most dendrobatids live in, but there are other choices based on personal preference and efficacy. Substrate should serve the dual purpose of being resilient enough to outlast the waste being broken down within it, and at the same time be somewhat of a source of nutrition for other organisms that use it as a secondary source of nutrition themselves. I'm a big proponent of cypress mulch for many of my tree frog and horn frogs because it lasts a long time. It resists decay, it holds onto moisture well, and it has lots of surface area to provide living space for springtails. It's not the best for every species, but it works very well for some. Leaf litter such as live oak and magnolia are slightly less resistant, but they break down 
they do break down, but it's, it's slow. They add the nutrient load and become part of the soil, which ultimately also helps plant growth. The important thing is to use a substrate that satisfies the animal's moisture needs. And one of the best and worst substrates for moisture is cocoa fiber, which I'm not a very big fan of. Cocoa fiber is great at returning, uh, re- retaining moisture, but not very good at releasing this. And what does this mean? Well, it's, it'll stay saturated longer than other substrates, but it drains very, very poorly. It can be used successfully in many simple setups, but it can foul easily for these reasons. As a dark frog substrate, it's kind of subpar uh, for something like a pixie. It can work, but you have to ask yourself, you know, where does the frog live? Does it inhabit areas that are constantly wet? Does it inhabit areas that get wet and then dry off? You have to consider this when you determine what your substrate choice is going to be. Is the animal arboreal? Does it seldom come into contact with any substrate at all? These are all questions you have to ask when picking one out. And remember, you're going to pick your substrate based on your target species. Not every amphibian wants to be wet all the time. And non-aquatic species that have terrestrial or arboreal life phases, they'll benefit from an enclosure that also provides them with, with choices. You don't want to give them just one single soaked, oversaturated you know, tank. It's, it's, they're not going to do well. I mean, my experience, particularly tree frogs, don't always do well with that. But um, dwarf frogs can be a little bit more forgiving, but we all see things like foot rot and terribilis and... It's just, it's generally unhealthy for animals to be constantly walking around in a silk substrate unless that's something that they actively seek out themselves. So if you want to quantify how well your substrate is going to work, again, tailor the approach to the species, tailor it to the, sometimes even the individual, uh, and see what works. You know, go with what works for you. Go with what, what will be consistent with what you expected to clean up crew, what you expect in terms of your waste management, and go from there. So now let's move on to plants. And it's important that we understand how crucial plants are in what is often called a bioactive enclosure. Plants use animal waste as fuel. They, they purify the air, they aid in maintaining humidity, and they're just, they're generally awesome. Okay, plants always add to an enclosure. Sizing plants to fit the waste load is also an important consideration as it will influence not only the plant growth, but also how effectively waste is processed. And here's a good example. I have the most vigorous plant growth in the tanks that have the most waste. Whether it's in the form of animal waste or decayed substrate, uh, plant growth just seems to go along with, with waste. And that helps me maintain a good balance. And again, that's, that's what you're going for in a bioactive or naturalist enclosure, balance. When I started using house plants in the 90s, I found that between them and whatever else was in the soil, whether it was microfauna or microbes or what, the waste was broken down fairly evenly. And when I added plants to paludariums, I found that there was less water changes and that the plants often grew much bigger themselves. The pothos that I have growing in my mossy frog paludarium, they're gigantic compared to any other pothos that I have in my house. And I I can say that objectively because I I have literally, every pothos in my house is a function of one clipping from about 25 years ago. Every single pothos is is descended from that one clipping. So the waste, I mean, obviously the mossy frogs produce waste that kind of make it kind of gross in there, but the pothos in there is gigantic. And my non-paludarium tanks, not so much. So I can only attribute that growth to the, you know, to the waste that those frogs produce in there. Uh, in fact, I've actually, I don't think I've ever done a water change in there. I've just added water as needed. And this tank's been going for a good six or seven years. 
And I know for many people, pothos is a garbage plant. I know a lot of people look down on it, but if you're a beginner, it can be a really effective tool of keeping a, a tank clean. It thrives in many different levels of moisture and humidity, temperature, lighting, uh, lighting rather, and it just it thrives on waste. There are many other plants available for different situations, and really the sky is the limit if you're comfortable with, with different types of plants that require a little bit more work more power to you. But if you're a beginner and you want a foray to naturalistic, uh, there's a reason that pothos is the most commonly available option because it's pretty much unkillable. And it'll live in really pretty much any kind of environment that you give it unless you, you know, unless you stick it in like a jar of sand somewhere. I mean, pothos will even grow as an emergent. It'll even grow with the app without any kind of substrate. Uh, it's, it's a good gateway plant. Uh, I know, like I said, many people don't like it, but just because you don't like a certain plant doesn't mean that you can't get away with including it in a couple of builds. Um, another thing also is when you think about plants is is obviously is practicality. You're going to want to use plants if you really want to go you know full nat- naturalistic. You're going to want to go with plants that are consistent with what the animal would actually encounter in its natural habitat. Many purists out there like to only use plants that are from a very, very specific biome and not do some kind of like weird you know, Noah's Ark of plants where there's a little bit of everything in there. I know some people are really particular about that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't include plants. I mean, look, it's your enclosure. You can do what you want, but I wouldn't include plants under the assumption that they're going to better the animal's well-being uh, unless that animal partic- has a particular relationship with that. I mean, let me give you a good example here. I know everybody loves bromeliads. Everyone goes crazy for bromeliads. I have bromeliads. Mine are huge, again, as a function of all the waste. But uh, bromeliads really don't do much for a lot of dendrobatids. And with the exception of, like, uh, some, you know, the Ophaga species and some of the Ranatomea species. I mean, I mean, I have I have seen phyllobates actually lay eggs in some of my bromeliads, but they don't really serve much of a practical purpose. They're really more for aesthetics. So... Don't think that you need to incorporate bromeliads into every enclosure for it to be bioactive and naturalistic. In fact, a lot of dark frog keepers are kind of like getting away from that now because to really recreate the biome, I mean, bromeliads don't grow a foot off of the forest floor. They can grow up to 100 feet up in the trees. So if you really if you really want to go legit naturalistic, think about where the plant placement is within the animal's environment and plant it accordingly. And hopefully you'll have good luck with that. Plants work very well. They, they're great at waste management. They can do a tremendous amount if you have an enclosure that's very, very well planted. You'd be surprised about how much waste that it can actually break down and how self-sustaining it actually can be. Again, if you've matched all the other factors, if you've matched the waste management in terms of what the tank can handle, what the cleanup crew can handle, and you add plants into that mix and you're pretty much good to go. So when does a bioactive or naturalistic enclosure succeed? Well, how do we measure success? Since we can't communicate directly with reptiles or amphibians, we have to quantify our success through observation. Normal behaviors, general well-being, and good health all indicate success, or at least in my opinion. Some consider breeding to be a good measure of success, and I, I agree with this to an extent. Many amphibians breed very well in Spartan setups. In fact, I have no problem whatsoever with temporary Spartan breeding enclosures for frogs since they're just so effective. Most species... Uh, obviously, dar frogs are an exception, but most species of frog, most species of amphibian, are explosive breeders. Scientific and conservation efforts, as well as breeders, regularly use simple breeding enclosures, as such as a rain chamber, to encourage reproduction. 
No one's forcing these frogs to breed. They're just doing what evolution, uh, evolution, <laughs> they're just using what evolution has taught them to do in these conditions. So despite the fact that they're not elaborate, there's no plants, there's no microfauna, frogs behave quite normally in a rain chamber when it's ready time to breed. But there's no reason why they can't behave normally in a naturalistic vivarium as well the rest of the year, outside of breeding season, or if you just choose not to let your frogs breed. I also prefer to use the term normal behaviors as opposed to natural behaviors. Not every behavior that occurs in a natural setting will occur in captivity, really just due to spatial constraints. And I know a lot of people like to encourage natural behaviors, but it's not always going to happen. So you have to understand that every natural behavior is just is not going to occur in captivity. You can try to aim for as much uh, as many, as many options as possible. I'm a big cha- I'm a big proponent of giving animals the choices to engage the environment that they're in, but we have to have real realistic expectations. So, for example, Ufaga pamilio have been seen 100 feet up in trees depositing eggs. Obviously, we can't create that in captivity, so we are eliminating a, no- a natural behavior. But we can aim for normal behaviors as close as we can. We want them to be able to move about in ways that are normal for the species. But like I said, we can't have everything. A stress-free, normal behavior consistent with what the species does naturally is what we aim for and what, in my opinion, should be the measure of success in a bioactive or not. Besides the animal's behavior and well-being, there's also the obvious signs of success, a healthy odor-free enclosure that functions as closely as possible to a natural biome, waste isn't piling up. Remember, amphibians are not forgiving as reptiles as well, so if your animals are alive and they're thriving and they're doing well, that's usually a pretty good margin of success. Certain reptiles, especially ball pythons, I mean, ball pythons are rough, but they don't they don't just drop dead one day the way frogs do. And frogs can just randomly die for any number of reasons, but if your husbandry is poor, they're not going to they're not going to make it. They're not going to survive. So if you have frogs that are living into this ripe old age and they just physically look good, odds are you've succeeded. You've done something right in such a way that, you know, they're they're doing well. Uh they're not going to give you a, a, a like a lot of wiggle room I and mean, you could keep a ball python in a terrible setup for for years. I mean, I I saw it all the time like I mentioned earlier. In the old days, we saw a lot of snakes that were just kept, you know, terribly. They were kept bad. And a lot of them just lived and lived and lived despite being in poor health. Frogs aren't going to do that. So if you want to quantify how well your husbandry is working, uh, if you can keep amphibians successfully in captivity in a naturalist enclosure and they live, odds are you've, you've, you've gotten it. So it's, that's, that's something to be proud of if that was your goal. Uh, when does it fail, though? Okay. A system can fail for a few reasons, and in my opinion, it takes work to get it to succeed, but it almost takes work to make it fail. As far as how a system would fail, I think it's really just a matter of working too hard to like overdoing it. So three possibilities. Okay, number one, it wasn't matched for the species. Two, it was executed poorly. Or three, it was expected to be 100% maintenance-free. As far as mismatched setups go, it's important that we understand that there's many different species of frogs and salamanders available in the hobby, and many have similar, but some have very, very unique care parameters. And we have to ask ourselves, are we using the generic template that I've kind of been championing against in this show, or are we using a specific template when applying the bioactive principle? The dart frog mode doesn't equal good husbandry if it's applied to, say, a Phylomedusa sauvagia, as I said before. 
I see people appropriating the dart frog setup for a number of other species. Even though there can be some crossover, it does make me cringe when I see someone post a picture or a video of, you know, a pixie frog decorate, you know, a tank that's decorated with bromeliads and a waterfall. I mean, neither of them benefit this particular species if we know anything about pixie natural husbandry. Uh, yeah, it's nice. It looks great for the keeper, but I mean, a pixie frog is not going to, number one, is not going to encounter a bromeliad at all in the wild, and it's definitely not going to climb up and interact with it, but other species may. So you want to think about, you know, did you match the enclosure appropriately to the animal? Did you match its waste output? Did you match it in such a way that it's consistent with what the animal would was evolved to live in? Number two, in terms of execution, I see failures occur when the basic principles, such as, like I said, ventilation, lighting, and heating aren't considered. Uh, I said earlier, substrate doesn't uh, soak substrate doesn't equal high humidity. Yet I see people soak these blocks of coconut core, stick it in a tank with a screen top, add springtails, and assume that everything is going to be okay. Extremes that are inconsistent with what species needs are what causes these bioactive systems to fail. If the goal is balance and the setup goes too far, like I said, if you're trying too hard to get it wet or you're trying too hard to get it dry, you're losing that balance. And that could be where you would experience a failure. So you're going to want to think about finding that balance. And it's going to sound silly, but my the barometer of like what I consider like you know successful bioactive substrate is is the odor test. I mean, again, I mentioned earlier there's that smell. If your substrate has kind of like an earthy tone, like you'd smell almost like in a greenhouse, that's usually a good indication that it, that it's healthy, that it's, it, it's hard to explain, but all my tanks kind of have that smell. It's kind of like rich, kind of you know, earthy, outside, natural kind of soil smell to it. And if you've got that down, you've probably, you've probably pulled it off. If your substrate smells like rotten eggs, it's gone anaerobic or if it's just too dry and it's not maintaining adequate moisture or it just has waste piling up in it something's not right and you're going to have to kind of reevaluate what you did wrong what you know where where was the, the the failure in execution i mean realistically it's not that hard to do i mean it, it's it's in my opinion i feel like you have to actually try harder to mess it up but i mean again if you're a beginner and you're having difficulty reach out to somebody, ask somebody, you know, Hey, listen, I'm having problems with my substrate. I'm having problems with this. I'm having a problem with that. Um, my plants are dying or, you know, it's too hot or I don't have adequate ventilation. Ask somebody. There's a, a whole community of people out there who are going to be more than happy and more than receptive to answering questions. And like I said, a lot of times it seems like people overthink it too much. Like the dart frogs, for example, people think that, and erroneously that they have to be kept soaking wet, that they need water features, that they need 100% humidity. No, they don't. They need a balance. They need relatively high ambient humidity. They need a substrate that is not soaking wet, but they also need regular access to moisture, whether it's through misting or whatever. That's just recreating the natural habitat that they come from. So I see people, like I said, they overdo it. They overwater. They don't, you know, they, they don't, they don't really, they don't execute it properly. They have too little ventilation or too much ventilation. It's little subtleties like that that can help the system work and little subtleties like that that can you know cause a system to fail. So lastly, number three, and this is the biggest myth about naturalistic or bioactive keeping is that it's completely maintenance free. No, it's not. It has never been. It has never will be. 
no matter what we do, we will never fully able, we will never fully be able to replicate a natural ecosystem in a captive setting. We must accept the fact that we are the missing element that makes it work. Okay, we have to do a routine maintenance and monitoring to keep the system up and running. Some systems may be very, very light on maintenance. But those are the ones that are in balance, and balance can tip from time to time, and we need to intervene. For example, uh, I either add to or completely change my leaf litter in most of my tanks. Well, I shouldn't say most of all my tanks. Every few months, it breaks down. It's part of the process. Just as new leaf litter will fall from the rainforest canopy down to the forest floor, I must provide fresh leaf litter for the system to continue. Nothing's going to last into perpetuity, and obviously. You know, it's not raining leaves down inside of the tank on any regular basis, so I'm the one who has to intervene. Cleanup crews will not be able to function independently. You're going to have to scrape poo off a of glass and wash it off. They're not going to be able to get everything. Uh, no misting system is going to completely wash down every little bromeliad axle. It's not going to wash everything off the glass. You're still going to have to clean glass. You're still going to have to make sure everything is sanitary within reason. Um, if there's a mess in there, you are going to have to go in there. Well, you should you should go in there and clean it up. Uh, even though maintenance can be, you know, like I said, the workload has been delegated to the cleanup crew and whatnot, uh, you still have to take an active role in the well-being of another living thing by tending to its environment. Think of it like gardening. Things are going to grow, they're going to bloom, then they're going to rot. It's all part of the cycle. But it's up to us to make sure that it all stays in balance because, to be honest, there really is nothing natural about captivity, whether we, however we justify it. So we have to act in, as a proxy for nature. And to me, that's the most empowering part of this type of keeping is we take on the role of nature. We take on the ability to provide a naturalistic, healthy enclosure for an animal and basically, you know, act, act as mother nature ourselves. And, uh, you know, to me, I think that that's actually, I, I think that's pretty cool. I think that it also imparts a tremendous amount of respect for the animals themselves. And I think it also shows a greater sense of responsibility and appreciation for the animals. I mean, if you're down there doing tank maintenance and you're getting lost in just, you know, cutting plants and uh, just doing your regular maintenance, to me, that's a lot more fulfilling than just going in and like taking out a piece of crap craft paper that has a big mess in it or just doing a water change on a very, very Spartan tank. To me, that is... And again, this is just a matter of my personal opinion. Uh, to me, there's more to that. There's more to that keeping, not only for the animal, but for the keeper as well. I feel like I would rather engage an animal in a naturalistic enclosure of my creation rather than a very, very artificial enclosure of my creation. But, uh, you know, again, that's just one of those things that people may take away from it. So I hope that this episode was enlightening. And if you're new to naturalistic keeping, I hope this was helpful to you. And again, I don't mean to be overly negative and critical of the term or, you know, a lot of these kits that are available, but I see a lot of people making the point and I feel like beginners really do need to have an understanding in some of the fundamentals in terms of why this system works and why it won't. So, you know, don't just think that you go to the store, you buy a bag of dirt that says bioactive on it and you're good to go. You really should understand the principles behind it, understand what goes into it and understand the maintenance that's going to be involved. I mean, because Anything's going to have it. Anything's going to have a degree of maintenance. In it. So, I want to say though that if you are keeping amphibians in a simple enclosure, it doesn't make you a bad keeper. So don't feel pressured by others and get beat down and discouraged because your enclosures aren't elaborate. Like I said in the beginning, 
There's many ways to accomplish the same ends. And I know some people who use simple, clean enclosures with great success. There's nothing wrong with that. If you're okay changing paper towels once a day or whatnot, there are certain situations that call for it. That's fine. If that works for you, that's that's fine. You know, to me, honestly, I think that that's even more work. But the important thing that you can do is just provide the best care possible. And I encourage you to always be open to new ideas and don't be afraid to ask for advice. Keeping animals is, it's like life. It's a linear progression. Unless we stop keeping altogether, it's important that we understand that there's going to be, there's going to be learning involved. We're always going to figure out new ways of doing things. And who knows, 10, from, 10 years from now, who knows what we'll be able to do. But the important thing always is, and this is at the very, very core of it, find out what your animal needs, find out what's best for your animal and provide it to the fullest extent that you can. Obviously, not everybody has the resources to create the same enclosure you're going to find at the Bronx Zoo or the San Diego Zoo. Do the best you can with what you have and always look for opportunities to improve. The idea, the goal, of course, is to be able to provide the animal with as close to what we can give it as possible. Because obviously, you know, captivity is captivity. But if we work towards that goal, the idea is to provide as best a life for your animal as you can. And, you know, hopefully you'll become a better keeper for it. So uh, I hope you guys appreciated this. Again, I know it's kind of an interesting topic and I know different people have different opinions on it, but uh, I wanted to take some of the mystique away and kind of just break down some of the principles behind it. So uh, if you made it this far, I know I don't usually do solo episodes that are this long, but uh, if you made it this far, thanks. I hope you guys appreciated this episode. And uh, if you have feedback, if you guys have questions, concerns, comments, um, things you agree with, things that you disagree with, uh, feel free to reach out. You know, this is one of those topics that I've kind of avoided for a while, but um, uh, I'm glad I got a chance to cover it and I hope you guys did too. So other than that, I look forward to next week. Catch up with you guys again soon.